No, my father didn't collect things. He was a navigator and a spice freighter and totally boring. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's idea of fun. Thought he should have stayed here and saved his money for evaporators and power converters, maybe the odd droid. There's not really a lot to buy on this planet. Have a look at this. Holy poodoo! This is the sweetest man cave I've ever seen. You're a collector? Yes, the same as your father. Look at that over there. Wow! What is that? It's the 1992 extended play Laserdisc, totally mint. Laser blaster? No disc. Hey, that's me. Why am I on the cover? And who's that girl? Uh... She's hot! You know what? Never mind. Your father, he was the best Star Wars collector in the galaxy, and a cunning shopper. I understand you've become quite a good collector yourself, which reminds me. I have something for you. Your father wanted you to have it when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damned fool idealistic crusade for a carded yak face or one of those plush Ewoks you could only get in Canada. What's a Canada? I am Whoa, what is it? Your father's electronic talking C-3PO figure case. This was shipped by ToyHut.com in one of seven sizes of custom shipping boxes, hand-packed as part of their zero-movement policy. Not as clumsy or as random as other web retailers. where are you? An elegant website for more civilized collectors. For over a thousand generations, give or take, Jet's Toy Hut have been the website for online Star Wars shopping. They are collectors as well, so they know what the customer expects. How did my father die? And uh, you get a free vinyl sticker with every order over $25. Toyhut.com All too easy. Previously on Caustic Soda, we talked about the Cold War with Alan Newell. And now, the conclusion. We interrupt our normal program to cooperate in security and civil defense measures as requested by the United States government. This is a Conrad radio alert. Normal broadcasting will now be discontinued for an indefinite period. Civil defense information will be broadcast in most areas at 640 and 1240 on your regular radio receiver. I repeat... Normal broadcasting will be discontinued for an indefinite period. You know, the Cold War was a period where, for literally 40-plus years, collectively everybody just lost their minds. Right. And things that you wouldn't even accept as something you could allow were considered standard. We had, from the mid-1950s until the 90s, every human being on the planet minutes away from death. Yeah. Uh, you know, the doomsday button. clock was moved to five minutes or whatever, exactly. or a minute or... And everybody just went about their business and went, that's that's a shame. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there were lots of uh, of videos shown in like elementary schools telling you to duck and cover yep. under your desk. Exactly. Bert the Turtle. Bert the Turtle. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the Turtle was very alert. <laughs> when danger reared its ugly head, he knew just what to do. Duck and cover. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that'll save you from nuclear holocaust. It will. Just get under your desk. From a uh, 50 megaton hydrogen bomb. Yeah, lampooned quite brilliantly in the movie Iron Giant, I might add. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. The nuclear arms race. Um, it actually began before the first test of the Trinity device in the United States um, with espionage in the Manhattan Project. Manhattan Project was the developmental project um, with British, Canadian, and American scientists to create an atomic weapon. 
The Soviets had uh, spies inside the program. Most notable, How did they get spies inside the program? A lot of them were disaffected Americans or immigrants from, for example, uh, Klaus Fuchs was a German who had right. left Germany before the war, was a scientist, was on the project, was disaffected. Uh, a lot of them, their belief was no one nation or, or faction should have this power alone. It should be shared globally. Oh, so there was actually like a political... Ideology. Yeah, ideological absolutely. I mean, some were it. in it oh. for the money. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, uh, I won't get into that today. It's a whole can of worms as a spy thing. Julius was politically motivated or ideologically motivated. His brother-in-law, who was a machinist on the project, was financially motivated. And right. he, he provided most of the information. These spies actually handed over almost the full documents on the development of the bomb. It was still up to Soviet engineers to figure them out and, and build the device. It took them a few years to do that. But they, were st- they weren't starting from scratch. No. But the race was on before the Americans knew there was a race. Yeah. The Americans detonated their first bomb um, just, oh, I I believe it was just a few weeks before they used the first one in Hiroshima. The the Trinity Mm. device was in June, I believe, or July. And then. So by Trinity device, you mean they blew up Carrie and Moss? Yes. Ugh. (laughs) Boo. How was Carrie and Moss uh, involved? I say again, boo. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about that. <laughs> August 6th, 1945, the U.S. dropped the first atomic weapon in history on the city of Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the snap of a finger, 80,000 people dead. Uh, most of us have seen the images of shadows yeah. burned into the wall from human beings that into were vaporized. Into the wall and into, um, there's a set of, of like stone steps that yes. you, people were sitting on that uh, they were incinerated and you could see their shadows. Right. So, so we'll obviously put those images up on the website as well, causticsodapodcast.com. The Soviets detonated their first bomb August 29th, 49. So three years later. Right. The Americans were, were stunned. They thought they still had another three to five years uh, of a head start on right. the Russians. Very shortly, they realized the espionage, the extent of the espionage, the witch hunts began, the Rosenbergs were executed in the same electric chair, one after the other. Yeah. How quaint. How quaint. It was, it, was, it, was, it was family. British detonated their first device in 52. France followed 1960. First Chinese bomb in 63. There's actually a website that shows a map of the world, and it just shows little dots. Dots come up and disappear. All the atmospheric tests. The above ground. I think all. I think all of the all? all nuclear tests and all all nuclear explosions that have happened on Earth. Okay. And you can and you can just watch this video and each one makes a sound and it still goes bing, bong, bing, bing, bong, bing, and then it just becomes this cacophony right of like, nuclear tests, like squeezing as, bubble wrap, kind of yeah. <laughs> as as uh, as time progresses, it's uh, fascinating and chilling. There were approximately eight hundred to nine hundred atmospheric nuclear bomb detonations. That would include the ones in the water as well. Right. The okay. actual above ground, which has given certain conservative people the belief that, see, nuclear bombs won't destroy the earth. We blew up 800 and we're all still here and everything's just fine. Uh-huh. That doesn't hold water. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a pun? <laughs> Uh, March 1st, 1954, the Americans do their Castle Bravo test, South Pacific and a Weetok Atoll. Right. Mm-hmm. Their first hydrogen bomb. Was... I know that there was one that they detonated that it was much bigger than it's, they it's thought it was one. going to yeah. be. Okay. Yeah, and I, then it ended up hitting some Japanese J- fishermen. It, the Japanese. The Americans have this thing with atomic bombs and Japanese yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They <laughs> irradiated uh, a boatload of Japanese fishermen. Yeah. I think we talked about it on a radiation. You did. So we didn't. You yeah. did. Not to be outdone, 1961, October 30th, Novaya Zemlya, a large island in the Arctic Circle, the Russians detonated the Tsar bomb. 
This is the largest bomb that's ever been detonated. Zar Bomba? Zar Bomba. Yeah. We talked about that in the explosions episode. Yes. <laughs> there you go. 50 megatons. Yeah. People that were 100 kilometers away had third degree burns. Right. 100 kilometers distance from it. Houses at 270 kilometers were burnt by the thermal effects of the pulse. Wow. It's unthinkably massive. It, wow. The uh, Russians were actually going to do a 100 megaton bomb. But they realized there was no way that the air crew that dropped it would be able to get away. Oh, I see. So there uh, were probably no volunteers lining up right. to, uh, to be the crew to drop it. So they just went with the little 50 megaton. It was actually about 57. God. But megatons. the 100 megaton bomb exists. Possibly. Well, there's um, a design for it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, the sure, capacity they have, to build I'm sure they have bigger ones that right. they could build if they truly needed them. Um, the Americans went the direction of precision tactical targeting. Right. So you could use much smaller ones. The Russians never quite had their targeting up to the same category. So they had the big monstrous SS-18 rockets with yeah, so you don't 50 have megaton to... warheads where, you know, you're trying to kill Vancouver so you hit Winnipeg kind of thing. <laughs> That's really bad aim. <laughs> yeah. That is, I don't know if people are familiar with Canada's layout, but that's really terrible. It's more that's like bad. you want to blow up Vancouver, you hit Chilliwack. Oh, you, you could probably go further than Chilliwack with 50 megatons. We oh, grew up... Yeah. We grew up in Chilliwack, and I remember being constantly reminded that because Chilliwack had a Canadian Forces base on it where yeah. I think the armory for Western Canada was, like yes. where they kept all the weapons. It was just small arms and stuff. Yeah. But because of that, we were on the hit list for Russian nuclear missiles. Mm-hmm. That if there was going to be a nuclear war, So make sure we you were duck and hit. cover. You too, Joe and Torin, could have been shadows on a sto- set of stone steps. Oh, if only. We are all stardust. I mean, yeah, we're going to go back to being stardust. <laughs> um, at, at the highest point of the Cold War, at the point where the most weapons were pointed at each other. There were approximately 18,000 nuclear warheads collectively pointed right. at targets. That seems like enough. That's pretty good. The Americans yeah. had uh, the ability to destroy every Soviet city 50 times over. Okay. And the Soviets had the ability to destroy every American city 20 times over. So Chilliwack, easily, they might have said, you know, we got all these extra bombs. Yeah. We might as well point one at Chilliwack. <laughs> let's, let's get the place where they keep their guns. Yeah. Uh-huh. And this gave rise through Sen- Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, to the concept of MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. Yeah. The point to Mutual Assured Destruction was everyone's absolutely guaranteed to be killed. Yeah. There's no alternative. And it's both sides. It's mutual. Yeah. So no one's going to be the first person to push the yeah. button. This yeah. is this is precluded the concept of oops, there's an electrical short and we yeah, launched, or exactly. a madman pushes or the crazy button. Crazy people, yeah. Or crazy yeah. people, or destabilizing influences, anti-ballistic missiles, right? Or submarines, where now we don't know where the subs are. We can't get those, but I might be able to get your missiles and then wait a day and launch my missiles. Right. The Star Wars program. The the Americans actually eventually got around anti-ballistic missiles with MIRV technology, M I R V. MIRV, as in Griffin, was he somehow involved? They. Just just a talk show host. Yes, repeatedly him and played. And Moss got together. <laughs> they repeatedly played his show over and over and over, and the Soviets just capitulated. <laughs> MIRV stands for Multiple Independently Targetable Reentry Vehicle. Exactly. It's a multi warhead missile. It splits up its, right. its exactly. heads and they spread out all. So the, the problem with anti ballistic missiles, which are super expensive to begin with, before you needed one missile to shoot down one missile, but now every inbound missile pops its top just as it goes over right. its apex, and ten warheads fall out. Right. Along with clutter to confuse radars. So now you would need mm. at least 10 anti-ballistic missiles per missile. So they I became that would ineffectual. Yeah. I'd like to talk about Project Iceworm. Is that the Remoraz <laughs> yeah, from, from Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons? Dragons. Yeah. <laughs> Lies in wait under the ice, uses its heat fins to pop up and attack. It's actually remarkably close. Oh, okay. Oh, really? <laughs> nice. Project Iceworm was the code name for the U.S. top-secret proposal to build a network of mobile nuclear missile launch sites under, Gre- under the Greenland ice sheet. Okay. The ultimate objective of placing missiles under ice close enough to Moscow to strike targets within the Soviet Union 
was kept secret from the Danish government. To study the feasibility of working under the ice, a highly publicized cover project known as Camp Century was launched in 1960. Project Iceworm was to be a system of tunnels 4,000 kilometers in length used to deploy up to 600 nuclear missiles. The missile locations would be under the cover of Greenland's ice sheet and were supposed to be periodically changed. Camp Century's official stated purpose was to test various construction techniques under Arctic conditions, explore practical problems with a semi-mobile nuclear reactor, as well as supporting scientific experiments on the ice cap. That was the official story. I'm, yeah, I'm going mm-hmm. to give him props. That's a pretty good cover story. Yeah, yeah no, that like is I would a good buy cover that, story. and then you know, portable nuclear reactor. So if you sense any nukes there, that's what yeah. that is. We're just keeping warm. A total of 21 tunnels were built with a total length of 3,000 meters. These tunnels also contained a hospital, a shop, a theater, and a church. What? The total number of inhabitants. That's awesome. I want to go to this place. This sounds like <laughs> West Edmonton Mall. Well, it actually looks like Hoth, like the rebel yeah, base yeah, on exactly. Hoth when you see the pictures of it. Oh, this is totally rad. The total number of inhabitants was around 200. From 1960 until 1963, the electrical supply was provided by means of the world's first mobile portable nuclear reactor. Water was supplied by melting glaciers and tested to determine if germs such as the plague were present. Nice. Within three years after it was excavated, ice core samples demonstrated that the glacier was moving much more intensively than had been anticipated and would destroy the tunnels and planned launch station in about two years. Oh, so this wasn't a permanent solution. Yeah, the facility was evacuated in 1965 and the nuclear generator removed. Project Iceworm was canceled and Camp Century closed in 1966. Okay, that is a way better idea than nuking the moon. <laughs> but nobody lives on the moon. Yeah. I know nobody lives in Greenland, but there's a lot of people <laughs> live on Earth. <laughs> Probably most people, certainly in our generation, have seen the film War Games. Yeah. The, the <laughs> Soviets actually began development on a system called the Dead Hand, which was a computer system that would, on its own, be able to decide to launch nuclear weapons. Oh. In the event, it received information that the leadership was dead and the senior military executive was dead. Right. Essentially, it was a spoil sport program. Everybody's dead. I'm going to launch and kill you. Wow. Oh, right. The joke was it's patterned after Whopper, the computer on war games, the war oh, operations okay. planned response yeah. system. Yeah. Did they make it play chess as well? Shall <laughs> we play a game? How about a nice game of chess? You've never had Whopper to your games night. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, we're not suggesting we ever will. No. I, well, the thing is, Whopper seemed nice. It, it recognized that the only way to win was to not play global thermonuclear war. But it was okay I, with I agree with that. <laughs> Uh, well, let's do a short potpourri of weird, crazy Cold War things that happened. What do you got? One of the, the common tropes of the Cold War is brainwashing. The right. Manchurian candidate. Yeah. And we build a Manchurian candidate. The uh, CIA, when they discovered LSD, they thought they had found the miracle drug for brainwashing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They knew nothing about the drug. Uh, it was legal in the United States for purchase. You could order it from the manufacturer. Mm. And CIA agents were ordering it in bulk, and they were told to go out and find out what you can about how this works. Right. So they were slipping it to each other. Mm-hmm. At one point, it got so out of control that the senior uh, administration in the CIA issued a directive saying that spiking punch bowls at uh, CIA parties with LSD was discouraged. Oh, (laughs) not even strongly discouraged. Discouraged. Uh Um, The fact that they actually had to discourage that sort of behavior, you know, on the basis of like, oh, hey, dude, this is my job, man. This is like, I'm supposed to do this. It may result in a finger wagging. (laughs) You a stern tongue lashing. I want to show up to some alterna anti-government parties where they're all getting high on LSD and go, you guys are just like the CIA. (laughs) 
They uh, they had a number of people uh, in the office who had it unknowingly slipped to them who uh, were killed running out into traffic, jumping out of windows, oh, wow, that yeah. sort of thing. So they uh, they kind of reined themselves in after a while. Yeah, because the unknowing part, like it's one thing if somebody says, "Hey, take this LSD, yeah. let's see what's going to happen." It's right. the whole like, "I don't know what's happening to yeah. me. I'm going insane. I'm growing flippers." Yeah, yeah. what happened? <laughs> One senior police officer in his retirement, just just a few years back, uh, he worked in narcotics. And in the 60s, he said every time he tracked down a very senior drug kingpin, it was a CIA agent. Oh, wow. And Hmm. in the LSD division anyway they were they were just going I, I can't believe this all the lsd at one point in time was coming from the cia there's a there's a tv series called drugs inc they had this uh, former dea agent that was uh, went into a an lsd manufacturing facility i forget exactly how it happened but he ended up getting dosed with like a hundred hits of acid instantaneously and his entire they, body melted they put him in a black room to remove all sensory input to try and keep him from having like a total psychotic break, and uh, and he's he's actually uh, now at such long term mental effect that like he has uh, short term memory loss. Right. He has like it's, it's been like fifteen years and he's still suffering from the effects of it. Like I, who knew there could even be like a massive LSD overdose? But this guy found out. In- it's like there's a downside to drugs. <laughs> it's it's odd. Also in the program there was hypnotism. The subjects that were used were CIA secretaries. Helen, could you come in here for a minute? And and they they just talk about it so as if as if it was nothing. I put her under, yeah, and then gave her some commands, right? And it, it was like they were doing this five days a week to secretaries. I mean, you couldn't drink punch, you couldn't be a secretary at the CIA. <laughs> Things were were pretty dangerous there. In other items, there one one that I just find so bizarre was the 1958 second Taiwan Strait crisis. There was an earlier Taiwan Strait crisis. There was a third Taiwan, Taiwan Strait. The Taiwan Strait is the the Strait body of water between China and Taiwan. Okay. Uh, actively disputed by China, um, actively defended by Taiwan and the United yeah, they, States. Yeah, they keep, uh, the, the Chinese always have like military exercises right off as, the coast of as Taiwan. As do the Americans. And, uh, two, two small islands that lie in that strait, Kimoy and Matsu. In 1958, the Chinese government began bombarding Kimoy with shells. Um, just dropping, do people live on this island? Yeah, people live on it. It's a fairly small island, but people live on they it. Just they just started dropping bombs on it. Started shelling it, artillery from okay. the mainland. All right. And on an artillery range or just at random? Just, actually, it was, it was pretty random for the most <laughs> part. They just pop off a few shells now and then. So, of course, the Americans and the Taiwanese fired a few back. Now, this crisis actually kind of went on until 1979. It wasn't completely solved, but they did work out an unofficial agreement where they would bomb each other on alternate days of the week. <laughs> Oh, so they shell each other. Nowadays, Kimoy and Matsu have an industry of making cleavers and knives out of the metal from these shell cases. Oh, wow! And it's, okay. it's a huge recyclable growth industry, right, on the islands. Like literally turning your 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 weapons Swords into, into plowshares. Plow yeah, yeah. Um, another one. These are these are fairly famous uh, attempts by the CIA on on Castro's life. Uh, yeah. Not all were on his life. Some were simply on his credibility. Attempts to embarrass him publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a great channel BBC. Channel 4 documentary entitled 638 Ways to Kill Castro. <laughs> it's been argued that there were 638 attempts on his life or on his public character right. uh, by the CIA, none of them effective, which when I hear plots about the Kennedy assassination, I kind of go, hmm, food for thought. Yeah, 638, you'd think that one of them would work just by, like, till you by hear accident. Until right? you hear what some of them were. Uh, uh, the very famous one is the exploding cigar, which actually, out of all of them, 
wasn't a real one. It was kind of a joke in the offices at the oh, CIA. Oh, I right. see. Why don't we try an exploding cigar? It'll be deadly and hilarious. But it's the <laughs> most reasonable of some of these. Cuba, or Castro was absolutely fascinated uh, with scuba diving. Right. So I heard about this one. What are the, oh, there's two with this <laughs> okay. one that I absolutely... One was to collect a large number of Caribbean mollusks. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Bivalves, yeah. clams, that right. sort of mm-hmm. thing. Find one that seemed very visually appealing, attractive, like you would might want to go collect it's it like when you're scuba diving. Gilded clam, right? Fill it with explosives. Ah, <laughs> you've got to watch out for exploding clams. <laughs> That's, That's what, what she, she said. said. <laughs> um, Is, now I wonder if there are still uh, ex- like clams ready to go at the bottom of the ocean. It's like a little minefield. <laughs> I down don't there. know. I. Yeah. That's another meeting I would like to have sat in on. Somebody takes their honeymoon to Cuba, goes scuba diving 40 years later. Oh, look at this visually appealing clam. Your, your life insurance claim? Exploding clam. I want to know what, like, what they were like uh, workshopping as far as like ways to make that clam more visually appealing than any other. Like, I just imagine the cartoon-esque like, neon sign, like, pick me, kind of arrow. Well, it's, the it's actual, a normal clam, but it has a pearl about the size of your fist. <laughs> it's the clam from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The, the oyster from 20,000 oh, Leagues right. Under the Sea with the giant pearl. No, actually, uh, the, uh, the clam shell or the, the mollusk shell had to be big enough to contain a lethal quantity quantity of explosives right. and it would then be painted in colors lurid and bright enough to attract Castro's attention when he was underwater. Mm. I hate to be his diving partner. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Be happy if you were his diving partner. You wouldn't want to be the guy who shares his wetsuit. Okay. <laughs> they had another plan for his wetsuit. They were going to give him one as a gift through a um, an a, interested a, third party. A, a diplomat that Castro was somewhat right. friends with. Right. And the the interior of the wetsuit was going to be uh, rubbed with a topical chemical lsd that would <laughs> cause him to have skin lesions sores right acne that Royals. sort of thing some sort of chronic skin disease and disabling uh it didn't work out because they found out the diplomat had actually already given him a wetsuit as a gift <laughs> so <laughs> too you know, little too late <laughs> so we're down to 636 attempted plans here. <laughs> uh another one i love this one uh this sounds like a Wes use... Anderson movie. Or oh, it's just, <laughs> you, you've got to wonder. This is probably, these guys were using the LSD when they were coming up with yeah, these no ideas. Kidding. I think. No kidding. Um, one was to use a depilatory. He was coming to speak at the UN in New York, and the Americans were going to be very embarrassed if he spoke. And, is that uh, another and, word for a lint roller? No, uh, yeah, uh, it's like making you bald. It's nair. Yeah, a depilatory oh, okay. causes hair to be removed. Right. Yeah. So they had one that women at the time used to uh, depilate their legs, yeah. and they filled his shoes with it, hoping his beard would fall out. <laughs> And he would either be too embarrassed to be seen publicly and wouldn't speak at the UN. Does he wear his boots on his chin? Or he would lose all his credibility by losing his. Perhaps his they thought he was beard. a hobbit and wanted to get rid of the hair in his yes. feet. On his feet. Uh, I, I know. This is another example of dudes not understanding women at all in any way, shape, or form. Women must just put it in their shoes and all their hair falls out their whole body. That's, I can see this. That's scene. why they're all bald. I can see this scene in the Wes Anderson movie. He comes in and he's, oh, I've got to go to the UN and puts on I just did a Russian accent for a Cuban guy I'm sorry <laughs> he puts on his shoes what the get me another pair of shoes I gotta wash my feet here and he puts them on and keeps washing and the CIA guys watching through the through <laughs> the, the eyes of the binoculars. painting are like yeah. he put his feet in his beard's gonna start falling out <laughs> 
And they follow him for the rest of the day. What's going on? Apparently, they had some LSD left over, and they did spike one of his cigars. Okay. But uh, they weren't able to slip it into his private stash. Oh. So that didn't work. They they did try um, sharpshooting, poison, ambushing, stabbing. <laughs> yeah, the they didn't classics. work. The they classics. Did, the classics. <laughs> they did have one that apparently they got from a Marvel comic where they intended to melt him alive in a vat of molten iron. <laughs> Uh, while he was on a factory inspection tour. So like just like somebody, the Terminator. Like just somebody shove him. Hey, you dropped something. Yeah, yeah and death he, by shoving. In he goes. <laughs> and none CIA, of them worked. Crazy. The CIA is terrible at killing people. <laughs> you think Which is my point on the Kennedy assassination. Like it is yeah. not... None of these are going to end up not being pointed at them later. Like if, if he exactly. dies from a wetsuit that is given to him by somebody else and they'll eventually track it down so they'll know it was the CIA. Absolutely. So if they're going to know it's you, walk up behind him and shoot him in the back of the head. What's what wrong with you? Seems like a if more you're going to take route. the blame anyway. Well, they they did hire one of Castro's ex lovers to poison him, and they gave her poison pills, and she hid it in a, a jar of cold cream. But the pill melted into the cream, oh. and she personally didn't think she'd be able to stuff his mouth full of cold cream <laughs> without weird. waking him up. <laughs> no. So I mean, they tried things that seemed a little more reasonable, but none of them carried off. I, I don't think. I, I don't think there was a whole lot of strong effort behind this. I think a lot of this stuff was in the planning stage, but right. uh, still. Probably some minor CIA agents trying to get their comeuppance in the in the whole industry. Oh, if I take out Castro, this I'll is, get promoted. This is like the CIA version of a writer's room on a TV series yeah. where like the young guy who's just trying they to like pitch make, their idea. Yeah, he's pitching like the craziest thing you can think of just to get noticed, right? You know, it's too bad we didn't have reality TV back then. Yeah. <laughs> this would have been an awesome TV show. America's, America's next top assassination. Mm. Yeah. Real, real CIA agents of Washington. And each DC. week, I'm sorry, you didn't kill Castro. <laughs> you have to go. Yeah. Oh. You're fired. <laughs> Civil defense is common sense. This is Fred McMurray. Home shelters can be built for as little as $100. Simple plans for building inexpensive home shelters are available free from your civil defense office. Ask for a copy of the Family Fallout Shelter booklet. In the news. From Grenada, June 9th to 2012. So Grenada was invaded in 1983. 
Operation Urgent Fury. Didn't they go in to like rescue some college students or something? That's the job I want. Th- naming that, CIA missions yeah. projects. <laughs> that was the, uh, the 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 rationalization behind it all. Was there's right. some American college students that we have to protect? But really, what happened is there was a communist government mm-hmm. that took over in a coup like three years earlier. And there was an even more radical communist faction that took over the government in another coup. So this is part of this whole domino thing. The U.S. were like, screw it, we're going in, or all of the, uh, you know, the Caribbean will fall. Where's Grenada? Uh, it's in the Caribbean. Is it shaped like a pomegranate? <laughs> it, this was actually still part of the uh, Monroe Doctrine. President Monroe, back in the early part of the 20th century, said no non-American influence is permitted in our hemisphere. Hmm, okay. The reason that this is in the news is because in the coup that led to the American invasion, the prime minister, Maurice Bishop, was executed by the more radical faction. This is something that happened just now? No, this happened in 1983. Okay. During the bloody upheaval, uh, Bishop, along with three members of his cabinet and four others, including his pregnant mistress... Their throats were slit, and they were taken to a military camp six miles outside of town and partially burned in a pit. And then that's where the bodies were lost. And so in the news is uh, the Grenadian, Grenadian? Grenadiers. The Grenadiers? The Grenadian? The Grenadines? The Grenadines? Maybe. They taste very sweet in a cocktail. Uh The Grenadines are redoubling their efforts to find the body of their slain leader. So they're uh, they're looking for a, an unmarked grave somewhere on the island. Oh. Uh, they're searching for it for closure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Grenadian? Grenadian. Or, or Grenadian. I think Grenadian. I think it's Grenadian. Rhymes with Canadian. That was actually a problem. During the conflict, there was confusion uh, over airline channels when they were saying Grenada, Grenada, Air Canada. And uh, Air Canada. And we were getting news reports back in Canada that Air Canada flights had oh. somehow been whipped up into the Grenada conflict. The U.S. government story was we have to go in and protect these U.S. students. And in the invasion, 19 Americans were killed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, collateral damage. <laughs> Let's protect them and kind of kill some of them. That's the best way to protect people, I find. Yeah. They Just didn't... remove them from the equation. Nobody can be hurt after they're killed. In the pop culture... Doctor Strangelove? Outstanding film. I I think if I was going to speak to someone who knew nothing about the Cold War, I'd say if you only watch one film. 1964, Stanley Kubrick, an insane general starts a process towards nuclear holocaust that a war room of politicians and generals frantically try to stop with George C. Scott and Slim Pickens Mm -hmm. and Peter Sellers in three roles. Yeah, three yes. three different roles. Doctor Strange loved the title character. Yeah, the British officer who is trying to stop the Armageddon on the Air Force Base. Yeah, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake and President Merkin Muffley. Brilliant name. Yeah, Merkin <laughs> Muffley. Yeah, a lot of those names were kind of double entendres and whatnot. And it's a, I mean, it's Keenan Wynn abs- played Colonel Bat Guano, and Slim Pickens is Major T.J. King Kong. It's, it's an absurdist comedy of the highest order, and just so well done on so many levels. And I love the way that Doctor Strangelove finally turns everybody onto the plan because he he explains to them that it means that all the leaders, all the generals and whatever that are in that room, will have to lock themselves in a cave with a bunch of like models and. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> nubile yeah, women. And nubile young yeah. women. And, and uh, aggressively. Ten, uh, ten uh, women to every yeah. man. Yeah. 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 And aggressively attempt to populate, repopulate right. the species. And right. that's how he gets them all the, to agree. The, board. The, the, the sub-theme is, is sexual frustration throughout yeah. the entire mm-hmm. film. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, one of the very first scenes is uh, one aircraft getting midair refueled by another, which is a big, long hose going into its fuel connector. It's and there's like yeah. th- it's coupling, and there's like a love theme being played over top of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's all about sexual well, frustration. The and, subtitle, the movie's name is Doctor Strange Love, but it's How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Yeah, I have some trivia. Oh, okay. And very Cold War specific trivia to start out with. All right, let's hear. It. This was filmed in 1964, while the uh, the Cold War was a raging. While the Cold War was hot. In the early 1960s, the B-52 was cutting-edge technology. Access to it was a matter of national security. The Pentagon refused to lend any support to the film after they read the script. Set designers reconstructed the B-52 bomber's cockpit from a single photograph that appeared in a British flying magazine. When some American Air Force personnel were invited to view the movie's B-52 cockpit, they said it was a perfect copy. Stanley Kubrick feared that Ken Adams' production design team had used illegal methods and could be investigated by the FBI. <laughs> they were afraid that maybe the movie would get like shut down or yeah, confiscated yeah. or whatever because they feared that maybe they'd be giving away state secret. Exactly. It was under production during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And one, oh. of the things, one of the things that I noticed when watching it was the very first thing on the screen is this massive font intro text that says... It is the stated position of the U.S. Air Force that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are depicted in this film. It also said that nobody, all the characters were fictitious and were not based on anyone, but that's not exactly true. Right. No. Right. Uh, the character of General Buck Turgidson, played, played by, by George C. Scott, was patterned after Chief of Staff of the Air Force General Curtis LeMay, who was renowned for his extreme anti-communist views and once stated that he would not be afraid to start a nuclear war with Russia if he was elected president. Similarly, Brigadier General Jack Ripper was patterned after General Thomas Power, LeMay's protege and successor as Commander-in-Chief of Strategic Air Command, when briefed on a proposal to limit U.S. nuclear strikes on Soviet cities at the beginning of the war, Power responded, Restraint! Why are you so concerned with saving their lives? The whole idea is to kill the bastards! At the end of the war, if there are two Americans and one Russian, we win! (laughs) That sounds exactly like something that that George C. Scott's character oh, would have said. Absolutely, I, I mean, <laughs> like you can't write this stuff. I mean, you just got to like paraphrase these guys. Much, yeah. That's your movie yeah. right there. And while shooting aerial footage over Greenland, the second unit camera crew accidentally filmed a secret U.S. military base. Their plane was forced down, and the crew was suspected of being Soviet spies. I wonder what base was in Greenland. Uh, Do you think it could have been Ice Worm? That's hilarious. We just came full circle on that totally unintentionally. Yeah, the lines in that film. The dialogue. I, I'm, my favorite is gentlemen. When the president's speaking, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the, this war, is the war room. room. <laughs> <laughs> that and the uh, survival kit contents when he lists what's in it. Yeah. And he finishes it off with shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he originally said Dallas, but oh, yeah. Kennedy had just been assassinated. Oh. So they changed this it to Vegas. There's a little inside trivia right there. Oh, in one version of the script, aliens from outer space observed all the action. I could see that, yeah. Mm. The, uh, there was a different of... ending originally. Really? It, it originally ended with a pie fight in the war room. That's right. That's right. And, but then uh, Kubrick thought it would be a little too much. He thought it, it, it went into farce. Yeah. Right. And, right. and, and <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah, no, uh, that, that would be a very strange way to end that movie. Like, you sit there, it's one of those things that you see the way it ends now, and you can't even imagine it ending any other ending. way, because it's just so perfect, right? Yeah. Uh, pie fight! <laughs> Manchurian Candidate, 1962, Frank Sinatra. 
A former Korean War POW is brainwashed by communists into becoming a political assassin, but another former prisoner may know how to save him. Angela Lansbury plays probably the best villain right. I have ever seen in a film. And she plays the main character's uh, mother, but mother. she's only like three years older. She's yeah. only about three years older. Yeah, she plays... <laughs> Lawrence Harvey was the actor who played Raymond Shaw. A squad of American GIs in Korea are on patrol. They're captured by Koreans. They're brainwashed. Lawrence Harvey, uh, his character Raymond Shaw, is... Uh, programmed to right. come back to the Ameri- the United States as a sleeper agent to activate under certain circumstances to right, like conduct an assassination. Previously uh, implanted right. commands. Whenever he hears the command, Raymond, why don't you play a little solitaire? As soon as he sees the Queen of Diamonds, he goes into a trance and he can be programmed to go out on an assassination right. mission. Mm-hmm. And the agent handling him is his own mother. That's the big reveal, right? Yes. Well, there's also the weird sexual tension between them where she kisses him on the mouth and you yeah. just get the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's a brilliant, brilliant film on brainwashing and Cold War tensions. And um, it was so controversial at the time that um, Sinatra actually called his friend Kennedy and said, I've been offered this part. The book was quite famous at the time. Yeah. You think I should do it because it's quite controversial. And Kennedy said, I love the book. Yeah, yeah. Go <laughs> ahead and do it. I, I just love So they made it. It went into theaters and then had to get yanked yeah. Right away, because Kennedy was assassinated, Ooh. which is the, the subject, the of, subject the, of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't play in the States for 10 years after that. And the topic of the movie was considered politically so highly sensitive, it was censored and prohibited just before its theatrical release in many of the former Iron Curtain countries, such as Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and even in neutral, neutral countries such as Finland and Sweden. The theatrical premiere for most of those countries was held after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There's that old saying, you know, there's no such thing as bad press. But I guess if you're not even getting it screened, I mean, that's pretty bad press. <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> yeah, that's not going to help you make it your money back. The film took huge shots at, at American politics. There's uh, one character, Senator Johnny Iceland, who's running for VP, thinking he's going to become president when the, when the, v, when the uh, president gets shot. He's played by James Gregory. You probably know him as Inspector Luger from Barney Miller. Oh, okay. If you're in my age group, he's... Yeah, he's <laughs> I remember Barney Miller. His character is completely patterned after Joseph McCarthy from the McCarthy witch hunt, the right. communist witch hunt, yeah. where he's waving his piece of paper saying, I have here a list of 206 known communists in the State Department. And the media goes, sorry, we didn't get that. How many? 113 known communists. Yeah. And every time they ask him, he's got a different number yeah. because he was just telling a bigger and bigger lie. Yeah. yeah. And no one was following up on the previous information. They just wanted the next big story. Yeah. 13 days? From the year 2000? Yeah, Torn and I watched this uh, last week, and uh, it actually was a pretty good movie. Kevin Costner as Kenny O'Donnell and Bruce Greenwood as John Kennedy. Kevin Costner, and you said it was pretty good? Yeah. Yeah. What? So this was based on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. Well, I mean, I knew of the Cuban Missile Crisis before I watched this movie, but the thing that I kind of surprised me, the new information that I received, I knew all about the blockade and the fact that all these ships turned back. And that's sort of like, in my mind, that's where the Cuban Missile Crisis ends. But there's actually continued escalation even after that point and stuff that I wasn't even aware of. I sort of just knew that the U.S. warships went up and they stopped the Russians in their tracks. But that's not what happened at all. There's like, there was, that was almost the midpoint in the movie. Like, there was like almost a whole other movie after that. And it was really interesting how it played out. And it felt, I mean, hopefully it's historically accurate, in which case... 
there was this really strange way that it got resolved because it was all done through intermediaries and like nobody got on the phone. It was intermediaries and letters and telegrams, telegrams and, and pretending and, you didn't receive telegrams, yeah, pretending you didn't receive a telegram that you didn't like and just accepting the one that you did like yeah. and, you know, manufacturing result and using like known spies as intermediaries, but not knowing if they're actually speaking for the leadership. And at one point they thought Khrushchev had been ousted and they were getting telegrams from a harder line uh, yeah. faction mm-hmm. in the communist mm-hmm. party. And like, and uh, the whole thing is just ramping up towards nuclear Holocaust. And right? they, they, they knew they were close, but they had no idea until years later how yeah. close they were when both sides revealed their cards. Right. And they found out that the, Russians in Cuba at the missile bases had authority to launch on their own recognizance if they were attacked. The Americans didn't think they could launch unless Moscow gave them permission. So there were bombing (laughs) missions on the sites planned. And if that had happened, nuclear war would have started. In addition, there were Soviet submarines below the water, obviously, that you didn't Mm -hmm. see, who had nuclear weapons on board, who had launch authority if any shots were fired into the ships with nuclear weapons. Again, the Americans didn't know that. They were just a whisker Away yeah, you just need one war. trigger happy. And didn't know. And the good thing was, I mean, whether you're a Republican or, or Democrat or, or neither or both, Kennedy didn't want a nuclear war and Khrushchev didn't want a nuclear war. That's what yeah, it, saved everything in the end is they went, we like don't a, want a nuclear war. Especially from the portrayal of the film, all of the military personnel who's... Itching for a fight. Yeah, they're itching for a fight and they're using their strategies from past wars, mm-hmm. Yeah, not thinking about the future in any way or or modern warfare really well yeah. right up right up until the late 80s when i was in the military we received training in survivability in nuclear war situations oh yeah we, we had instructors who went don't worry you can survive a nuclear war <laughs> <laughs> i i, okay. I, I in, on to the point that torn was speaking about about how you know using old strategies and like kennedy from the very beginning was aware that the military complex like all the military leaders were itching for this to turn to escalate and he was trying to keep a lid on it. And so he said, absolutely no ships are allowed to fire on any of the Russian ships approaching the blockade line unless I give the order directly. And then one of the ships starts firing at one of the Russian ships. And they're like, what the hell are you doing? Stop firing. They're like, oh, no, we're not firing on the ship because these aren't live shells. These are just starburst warning shots. And like, but how do the Russians know that? Like. Like they were using this non-lethal warheads. They're yeah. like, it doesn't count as firing on a ship. <laughs> and they're like, uh, but you could have just started a nuclear war. <laughs> so which, is, which is what really Kevin Bacon wanted. Yeah. Oh, that's a different movie. <laughs> President Kennedy very frequently set up recording machines during meetings at the White House. Much of the dialogue from the movie is taken directly from Kennedy's tapes. And in Boston, Kevin Costner's attempt at a Boston accent is so notorious that a quote-unquote Kevin Costner accent is an accepted slang term for a non-Bostonian's unsuccessful attempt at a Boston accent. Wow. It, it, it sort of wavered. It wavered often. Yeah. Anytime Tom Cruise tries to do an accent, it was sort of in the same camp. Right. right? Is that like Kevin Costner's English accent and Robin Hood? Robin Hood. Oh, it was comparable. <laughs> oh, oh. Certainly in the same neighborhood. But I, I would give this movie a thumbs up. It could have been easily 20, 30 minutes shorter because they kept doing these like Kevin Costner sequences at home with his family and that added nothing to the plot and didn't move anything forward and didn't really, I didn't really care. I kind of was just like, get back to the White House. Let's see what's happening next. Right. right? So, but one of the the outcomes of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis was they installed the hotline between the Kremlin and the White House. 
in efforts to make like, sure that this doesn't enough happen of again. this telegram and and he said she said <laughs> yeah and the spies and intermediaries stepping forward saying that they represent Khrushchev's interest but nobody actually knows if that's actually the case and uh, we also watched Kevin and Mike and I. Uh, Our Man in Havana. Have you seen this one? Yes. That one? Uh, from 1959, Alec Guinness and Burl Ives. Uh, the novel and screenplay by Graham Greene and his novel Our Man in Havana was the inspiration for John Le Carre's novel The Tailor in Panama, which also became a movie. Yeah. So the very similarities. Uh, Jim Wormold, Alec Guinness, is an expatriate Englishman living in pre-revolutionary Havana with his teenage daughter, Millie. He owns a vacuum cleaner shop but isn't very successful, so he accepts an offer from Hawthorne of the British Secret Service to recruit a network of agents in Cuba. Wormold hasn't got a clue where to start, but when his friend Dr. Hasselbacher, that's Burl Ives, suggests that the best secrets are known by to no one, he decides to manufacture a list of agents and provides fictional tales for the benefit of his masters in London. He is soon seen as the best agent in the Western Hemisphere, but it all begins to unravel when the local police decode his cables and start rounding up his network, and he learns that he is the target of a group out to kill him. When I watched the movie, I enjoyed it. But looking back on it, I enjoy it even more. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. really? There were mm-hmm. just certain scenes and the whole way Alec Guinness played everything. And uh. it kind of started off kind of slow, did you find? Yeah, it was slow it's and awkward. very slow. Yeah. yeah. And then it picked yeah. up and was kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, it turned into, like, almost like a Doctor Strange love style farcical comedy yeah, in the right. middle. Yeah. And then people started dying. Then people started getting <laughs> killed. And it took... In horrible ways. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. it started, took a very awkward turn. The, the, the film was actually but... slightly different than the book. In the book, the Soviets think he's a real agent with a network. It's not just the local police because the local police are working for the Soviets. Right. That's, that's the, the key difference there. Right. But he's, I mean, he's an inept. He can't put a vacuum cleaner together. Uh, and he's got this great scene where he sends them uh, drawings of this this, uh, this secret, secret Russian base, base yeah. and all the designs are based on his vacuum cleaner. On his vacuum cleaner, yeah. right? In the book, I can't. Re- it's been a while since I've seen the film, but in the book, for scale, he, he includes the drawing of a man, but he's got a, an umbrella and a bowler hat. Yeah, and and they're back at British intelligence, going, "What does this mean?" No, no, no. He's, he's just eccentric. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he's. Uh... His daughter, Millie, is one of the chief reasons he decides to do this because he needs money to keep her in the lifestyle yeah, to which she's, she's become accustomed. Yeah, she's basically a brat. Yeah. And she is the least sympathetic character I've seen <laughs> in quite some time. There's nothing really redeeming about Millie. And you're kind of like, why does he care if she's happy or not? But It's, uh, it's a great film. It's the, yes. uh, the premise that uh, kind of keeps the whole plot moving forward. Trivia, Fidel Castro's government gave permission for this film, which presents the fallen regime of Batista in an unflattering light and also condemns American and British meddling to shoot on location in Havana only months before the revolution. It was completed during the brief period in 1959 before Cuba had aligned itself with the Soviet Union. The script had to be submitted to Cuba's Ministry of the Interior, which insisted that 39 changes be made to make it appear that life during the Batista regime was more unfavorable. Hmm. Mm. Uh, you know, one thing that was kind of unclear to me in the course of this movie was Burl Ives' character. They sort of suggest the fact that he might have been a spy himself. And so that's how come he knew. In the book, they're much clearer on that. Yeah. He's not really a spy. They've threatened him. Right. You're going to provide us with information or else. And the or else comes Happens. to pass. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But they, they kind of allude to the fact that perhaps he's even a spy himself. And so it's kind of like that Blade Runner question at the end when you're like, was he a spy or wasn't he a spy? And that great scene with the chess game, with the miniatures, with the well, no, the booze, <laughs> the, booze the, the alcohol, miniatures. yeah, they're yeah. little little tiny bottles of booze, and every time you take 
uh, your opponent's piece. Yeah. You, you have it. to drink it. So yeah. it's a natural built-in handicap. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I tried that when I was in the military with some friends. <laughs> <laughs> Sick for days. I also watched The Russians Are Coming. The Russians Are Coming from 1966 with uh, Alan Arkin as a Russian submarine lieutenant. Emergency. Everybody to get from street. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan Winters and Carl Reiner. It was pretty funny. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it was yeah. just kind of silly, but it had a lot. It was a very much a Cold War. You know, they just the submarine goes to this this kind of resort area, Nantucket, I think. Is yeah, it? I think so. Just to kind of check it out, mm-hmm. and they get sandbarred. They get stuck in a sandbar, so they have to go and find some way to get their submarine out of there. But they're all trying to sneak around, and they go to this person's house, and they said, "We need a, a to borrow a boat so we can." pull our submarine out we, we don't have any boats so have, they have to go into town and then yeah it just everything escalates and the town gets a posse together they have a very sensible police chief but they have this other old war veteran in town who's like leading yeah, the charge he's he's, insane yeah it's pretty funny and yeah. it's got alan arkin doing a russian accent throughout and he, it's alan arkin it's, he's a lot of fun it's good yeah to me it was a bit like douglas adams wrote the script some of the yeah. some of the plays with the english language right. he introduces himself to the russian as my name is whitaker walt whitaker so for the rest of the movie the russians call him whitaker walt whitaker right it's just <laughs> little things that when you say them off the cuff they don't sound hilarious but yeah. the way it's done in the film is is absolutely brilliant the knowledge of the language it's always a joy to watch Jonathan Winters do anything, even if, only, if it's only a bit part. Is this like a snapshot into us that like three out of the four movies we've talked about so far have been comedies about the <laughs> Cold War? <laughs> only one of them has actually been a dramatic representation of like historical fact? Well, then let's get to Red Dawn. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's a, It's also a comedy. There's just no... <laughs> this movie, I rewatched it the other day for this. It's terrible. It's yet it's... again another movie that I loved when I was 12. Yeah. And upon yeah. Yeah. second viewing, you realize it is really poorly constructed in a number of ways. It, it's They could have created a reasonable explanation for what was going on. Yeah. But instead just went, no, no, Russia attacks uh, Smallville, basically, Colorado. Mm-hmm. With paratroopers. With paratroopers. And they were completely not expecting it for some reason. Mm-hmm. The teacher of the class just walks outside and goes, hey, fellas, what's going on? And they shoot him. <laughs> this is the first place they attack yeah. is Bumfuckville, Colorado. And then what they do is they open fire on the school. They kill this teacher. and well, then that's they because just, they're monsters. And then yeah. they just run into the school they're and start killing Joe. students <laughs> for no reason. One guy opens up the door and fires an RPG down the hallway <laughs> because they're Russians and they're evil. I don't... Th- well, they just got too many RPGs. They got to use them up. This was this. This if is you a, don't use your entire RPG budget, you won't get. You won't get more year. RPGs from the sold, next year. soldier's point of view. It would be if I shoot it, I don't have to carry it. Anymore. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it, I got the feeling that like some Russian general had said, "There's a bounty on human stu- on American students. Uh-huh. That if every American student no. you kill, you'll get one pair of jeans." The Russian leader said. It's undoubtedly if we leave any of these students alive, they will take to the hills and become an elite fighting guerrilla force. <laughs> Which is, of course, what happens. Yes. And again, it's, it's how competent they are compared to how incompetent the Russian trained soldiers are. Yeah. Uh, some of them are also Mexican and Cuban, I guess, because Mexico fell. So there's Spanish soldiers or right. Spanish speaking soldiers. Yeah, well, there, there. Was a, there, was, there was a board game back in the 80s that uh, we played where it was called Invasion USA, I yes. believe. 
And it was Russian, Chinese, and Cuban forces all combined together to invade the U.S. simultaneously. Oh. So you had the Russians coming from the east, you had the or the Chinese landing on the west coast, and you had the Cubans coming from the south. And it came through Florida? Fortress, Fortress America. America. That's what it was called. That's right. what it was called. Uh, the film made the Guinness Book of Records for having the most acts of violence of any film up to that time. According to their calculations, 134 acts of violence occur per hour, 2.23 per minute. It really felt mm-hmm. like right-wing stupid american propaganda like like i the, the feeling i got and apologies if any of our listeners are members of this but it felt like the people who made this movie went on to form the tea party that's how dumb it is like it's just like <laughs> russians are bad and evil and americans are awesome even when they're completely untrained students so joe you had a problem with your suspension of disbelief <laughs> in the course of this film completely there, there's one scene where they go back to to meet their father he's been rounded up and he's in a prison camp but he can talk through the, through the, the fence. chain link fence yes and the father literally says i know i did things that made you boys hate me but now it's all worth it because it's made you tough. Like he's basically, yeah. I was an asshole father who beat you and who knows what else he did. But I knew right. that those Russians would attack and it would make you strong so you could fight against them. Like I did it all for you. He doesn't say that exactly, but it's basically an abusive father saying, see, they it's good up, that I was abusive. They wind up drinking blood at one point, don't they? Okay, so there's a scene where <laughs> they, they hunt a deer. Uh-huh. And there's the two older guys and the one younger kid, right? Yeah. And and they're one cut. of the older guys, Patrick and, and the deer is there dying. It's been shot, but it's fallen on the ground. And mm-hmm. he's like, we've got to kill it. No, we can't fire twice. The Blackfeet, they'd say if you'd fire twice, that's how they'd find you. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this You're going to hear a bow after you fire it the uh, second time? Well, no, the Blackfeet would hear you if you fired your gotcha. your, your weapon twice. Mm-hmm. So he, he says, no, no, and he kill, kills it with his knife. And there's this big macho thing about drinking the blood of the deer. That's how you get its spirit inside you. And I'm watching it, and the whole time I'm like, they're totally pulling this kid's leg. They're totally, oh, my God. They're going to make him drink a cup of this deer's blood, and then they're going to be like, ah, I can't believe we got you to drink the deer's blood. <laughs> nope. Nope. No, nope. they played it straight. Played completely straight. Well, they are all a bunch of dumb high school kids. And he says, that wasn't so bad three times. That wasn't so bad. That, that, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> That wasn't so bad. It's like the director said, just give me three takes. And then, and then put forgot them all in. To, and forgot to cut. <laughs> and I'm like, when when do they laugh at him? They don't. They keep talking about how now he's become a true hunter. Yeah, none of that it's, movie is tongue in cheek. That entire movie is like so sincere and self important. If you did it tongue in cheek, it would be great. If it became self aware, well, you they could are do, making a remake. Maybe it'll be tongue in cheek. The, Who's the enemy now? Word is now that they're not going to do a remake. That oh. it's been shelved for yeah. whatever reason. They, 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 there was talk of it. For yeah. there's nobody to invade them now. If they did yeah, a tongue in cheek, well, actually, if they did a tongue in cheek one, it would be Team America. I guess Team so. America World Police. Yeah. So it's been done. When I was twelve, you would literally when you were out playing like hitting each other with sticks and throwing tennis balls at each other's heads. Yeah. If you were winning, you would yell Wolverine. Wolverines. Yeah, that was a victory cry yeah. for years in so, my early preteens. So to sum up the rest of the movie, the the high school kids go up in the woods and become guerrilla fighters against this Soviet invasion of small town USA, and, and they defeat the Soviet army. It was the first time I saw one of those giant Soviet gunships, the, the, which Heinz. Is, the Heinz D, which yeah. is pretty awesome. Yeah, which a guy fires an RPG through the small open window to kill everybody and. Uh-huh. 
one other guy does a heroic stand. He stands there with his machine, like his his assault rifle, and just fires at it directly, standing out in the middle of a field as it comes at him, firing its multiple barreled weapons. Mm-hmm. How, how is that a good idea? Run away. Get it's a terrible it idea. Other, but he's not a trained but soldier. But see, the Cold War, everybody went nuts yeah. for 40 plus years. So yeah. that probably seemed like reasonable thinking. It, yeah. <laughs> I, that's probably what it was. It was when I first saw it when I was 12 or something, I probably thought, oh yeah, the Russians are bad and they want to invade. But really, it would probably be what happened in reverse to the Russians, which is your economy will collapse because you're inferior, and then your life just goes to shit, and everything changes, and the mob moves in. And there would be no invasion. Now invade. That'd make a good movie. I was thinking that same thing, that we should do a movie that's basically the opposite of Red Dawn, where America <laughs> does lose. Russia? No, where America does lose the Cold War, but there's no invasion. It's just what happened to Russia happens to America. And, you know, their government becomes corrupt and corporations take over and, oh, wait. So in that scenario, <laughs> in that scenario, who fires the RPG down the hallway at the school? Uh, some hippie, probably. Yeah. Civil defense is common sense. This is Boris Karloff. No one can guarantee the survival of every home during a nuclear war. But a strong civil defense can save millions of lives. Make sure that yours is one of them. Learn how to protect your home. Call civil defense today. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling. An ominous feeling. A feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new. And we'll have more gross facts for you. And you'll have things you'll want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while being mentally controlled by a parasitic barnacle. To comment on episodes, make a donation, or see show notes, links, and videos, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Subscribe to our Twitter feed at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Whoa, what is it? Your father's electronic talking C-3PO. <laughs> <laughs> you did it again. <laughs>